Welcome to Care Under Fire. Today I'm chatting with Matt Pepper, who has had an extensive career as both an ADF officer and Special Operations Intensive Care Paramedic. Matt was part of the paramedic response to the Lint Cafe siege and has done a lot of work driving change in the tactical medicine space in Australia. Matt, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Emma. No worries. Great to be here. So you were born in Parker. Sorry about was, that. Seymour Base Hospital. <laughs> yeah. Um, you grew up uh, as an army brat, sort of moving around. Your dad had his own pretty extensive career and was a Vietnam vet. Yep. Um, what was your motivation sort of after following your parents around the country in your early years to join the ADF? It's interesting. I, I don't feel like I – certainly dad was really careful about never pushing me towards um, a career in the military. And I never yeah. felt like, I mean, you know, I can remember being at Holsworthy at the back of two cav um, at a, uh, some, I think it was like a, a Sunday barbecue or something going on. And uh, all the, all the crew were there with dad. And then uh, some other kids and I went running out the back and collected a whole bunch of spent blank rounds and uh, cut cases and came running in like all proud <laughs> that we'd found all these and getting absolutely blasted by dad for uh, <laughs> bringing, bringing uh, potential UXO back up to the mess. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I, like, I guess I was, you know, I was always around it and, uh, you know, I remember yeah. corporal courage, like the, the Wedgetail legal mascot of Turkav, like, yeah. You know, poking sticks at him through the uh, the cage at Holsworthy back back years and years ago and yeah. uh, just, be, just being around. I can remember um, Dad when he was posted at Perth and being in Swan Barracks, uh, just being there every every evening to pick him up from the mess on Fridays or uh, being there during the week and hanging out in the barracks and uh, just running around with the other army brats like at, at whatever barracks or army area that we were in at the time. Um, it was just always a feature of my life, I guess, and I, I never felt like I was uh, going to be in the military. It was just something that was there in my life. Uh, yeah. And then I guess uh, I've got to say I, the, the one thing that I can definitely remember being the biggest motivation was that Army Reserve ad with the 1812 overture where they're like, <laughs> and then the guys, you know, they they popped yep. up out of out of the long grass. And... He's wearing a slouch hat in the field. <laughs> exactly, wearing a slouch yeah, hat in the it's field. A great ad. It was the best ad. And they're all running and jumping on APCs, and there was uh, some leopard tanks like. But barreling through the bush in the background, and that was that was when I felt like motivated. I always wonder, like, why don't they go back to that? And, you know, it's always about careers these days. Like, oh, you can yeah. get a trade in the military, but to me, it feels like uh, the real motivation to join the military should first come from uh, that idea of service and wanting to be part of something bigger and be part of a massive team and defend mm. your country. And you know, I, I just feel like there's something that maybe gets missed a little bit with the recruiting ads these days. Anyway, that's um, by and by. I, I, that is definitely a motivation of mine was seeing that sort of um, ad. And I guess just being around the army all the time, it just gets inside you. And I, I think it you know, gets into your bones and you don't realize it, but that's just something that, it, you know, it becomes part of your identity. Yeah. Um, and, and then, yeah, like by the time I got into year 12, uh, I had never even thought about joining. Uh, Dad had never pushed me into it, never said anything about it, never presented that idea to me. Um, and then uh, just as I was doing my uni uh, selection, like, you know, what um, uni courses I was going to put in for uh, at the end of year 12, I uh, just 
saw something. I don't even remember where it was, but somehow I came across the Ready Reserve. And I was like, oh, that's a good idea. Then I could do uni and I could do a year in the army first before I join, before I go to uni. And then I can get paid while I'm at uni to do, mm-hmm. you know, my weekends and my couple of weeks a year or whatever it is to, uh, yeah. to get some income. And that'd be a great adventure. And uh, it's not locking myself into the, into the army and I can still pay pursue... gap year and then yeah. the weekend job at the end of it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's a good deal. It was a great deal. It was amazing. Yeah. And uh, so 1996 when I joined was the year they, they uh, canned the scheme three months after I joined. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, th- I think that was probably a big part of it for me. It wasn't some massive commitment. I wasn't, uh, I didn't think of myself as an army person. I, I just joined because it was convenient. And I thought that'd be a really cool, adventurous thing to do at the same time as getting a bit of money through uni. So yeah. yeah. I can't say that I, you know, a lot of guys are like, oh, I was so motivated my whole life. I, I knew that I was going to do this, or that definitely wasn't the case for me. I, uh, I just sort of stumbled into it, and uh, and then once I was in, loved it, and sort of stayed. They hooked you, see. They hooked me exactly. <laughs> after the twelve yeah. months, yeah. So um, <laughs> you did your three months at Kapuka that year, and you were a gunner. That yeah, right? that's right. To, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and and uh, then. I've got to say, you know, like uh, I think a lot of people um, would would laugh or sc- um, be a bit scornful about uh, being a gunner, um, but I've got to say it wasn't my first choice. But uh, that was an awesome year. That was just brilliant, you know. Uh, being on the gun detachment, like you know, it's a it's a really physical, really dynamic job where you're out bush all the time, doing really physical, awesome, demanding stuff, and a lot of infantry minor tactics around the gun positions as well. And then uh, just with a with a small crew, so you got this like little crew of guys um, that are just your best mates and you're just, just yeah. living amongst them the whole time. And I really, I thrived and I loved it. And I actually, uh, I was just um, just lucky enough a couple of weeks ago to run into one of my best mates from back in when I was a gun number, Daryl, and I uh, hadn't seen him for over 20 years and we just reconnected uh, over in Timor Leste, um, yeah, not probably three weeks ago. And it was just awesome to see him and catch up and just go over some of those stories about being a gunner and being in the army in that, in that first year and how, how good it was. Good yeah. memories. Yeah, and it's like you've never been apart when you run into that person. That's right, person. exactly. And it, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know how you feel, Emma, like, but for me, like whenever I see people that I was in the army with, it's like you take it up straight away as if you yep. had not had a day in between, no matter how long that time period is. 100%, yep, exactly the same. Yeah. I, wonder, I wonder if it's like, I'm sure it's partly the shared experience of hardship. I think that's definitely a big part of yep. it. You go through crappy things with other people and then you're bonded for life. Yeah. Even if it's just a really tough field X or something, you know, just or being under a commander that you don't like. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> you <know? right>. <laughs> you're then You're then, um, yeah, you're just bonded forever. It's good. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So um, you then went over to the dark side um, yep. after that year and went to ADFA. Yeah, and I think that was... Um, pushed a lot by my gun detachment sergeant who yep. uh, sort of identified probably something in me that he, he thought he could see um, to be a leader and to go on to do um, some more. And uh, I'm really, really grateful for him taking the, the the time to, like, actually, I got my medical records and my service records sent to me um, just last year and I was going through it and I found the letter that he actually wrote for me um, to get me into ADFA, like his, his recommendation. And it was just amazing to see what he'd written and the effort he put into that to try and help me as this young guy that he wanted to see, you know, succeed and, and grow into something that he thought I could. So that was, that was really cool. That's awesome. How did you find your time at RMC and ADFA? Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Amazing. Like, yeah. You know, a 
lot of my best mates are, are from that time. Um, I just, yeah, it was just a really awesome time. I didn't always do well, like I struggled at the start and then, uh, you know, had to pull my weight at the end of ADFO in, in terms of my uni degree because I, I failed uh, half my subjects in the first semester of first year. Um, oh. <laughs> but, yeah, exactly. I got there in the end. And, <laughs> uh, and it, but in terms of like the military side, I just, I, I, I I'm definitely not what you'd consider a barracks soldier. I was terrible at ironing and shining my shoes and, and yeah. uh, that sort of barracks discipline stuff. But in the field, like I just found my place and I just loved loved leadership and I loved uh, infantry minor tactics and I loved carrying a pack and being out there with my mates in the field. And yeah, yeah. I, I, I found that stuff just absolutely incredible and uh, it was an awesome experience. And, uh, you know, the opportunity to go to somewhere like Adfa where uh, you're there with this, real, this, this crew that you've come super tight with uh, and studying, um, being paid to study at the same time as being fed and, you know, doing PT every morning. Uh, there's some, you don't always recognise at the time, but there's some good times in your life. Like when, and, you know, when you when you reflect back on it, you think, bloody hell, that was a that was a, a really good opportunity to have a great few years together. Yeah, absolutely. And came out with a Bachelor of Arts in History, yeah. which, you know, obviously I, I use every day and uh, has got me lots of jobs. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah, there's nothing like getting paid to train. <laughs> you know, like, absolutely. yeah, you've got to um, give defence there their kudos for that that it's a good deal yeah yeah so uh when you graduated um then where did you head where was your first posting uh first posting was actually up to Turkav um funnily enough yeah so Yeah, that's right. Yeah, to apologise to Corporal Courage for the times that I poked a stick at him yeah it was up to Turkav uh so we didn't actually, so we actually went on to ROBC for infantry, the Armoured Corps yep. guys, uh, to get, just to get all our range calls. So uh, that was cool. Like I uh, got a, a chance to hang out with m- a bunch of my mates from, from, uh, from Duntroon that were, had gone off to infantry corps and we had a really good couple of months up there doing the, uh, doing awesome ranges. And uh, then after that went up to Tukav and just, it was sort of like, uh, cause our ROBC didn't start till later in the year. So it was an opportunity for us to just go to the regiment and just uh, go out field and, I uh, did um, Tandem Thrust, which I think is called... Such a bad uh... name. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it? No wonder they changed, yeah. no wonder they changed yeah, the name. Yeah. <laughs> um, what's it called these days? Uh, I don't um, even know, mate. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, the, the, the big exercise that happens up in uh, Shawwater Bay uh, that used to be called Tandem oh, Thrust. Oh, it's all then, um, um, someone... Talisman Sabre. Talisman yeah. Sabre, that's yeah. it. And obviously, obviously and someone Hamel, looked at the name. And, and they and, change it around. Yeah. Yep. So uh, did Tandem Thrust, so we're up there for... I think we were up there for two months in the field um, with a week off in Rocky in between or something yep. like that. And that was, yeah, brilliant. Like as a, a young, wouldn't even call myself an officer, like a yet to be a officer, um, just up there with, with the boys and uh, doing some cool mm-hmm. stuff. And we had an exchange with the Marine Corps. And uh, so a bunch of our guys went over to the US and then they sent a, I guess it must've been like a, a squadron size over. So I had a, a team of, um, we dismounted um, for a month, had a dismounted team of, uh, of US Marines that I, um, had him uh, to work yeah. with and we had a really cool time it was like yeah that was that was good uh and then sort of towards that end of that six months after doing a few courses i did uh like a unit in planning officers course and uh, i can't remember it, a few other sort of courses that came up um and then uh, headed down to rbc down at pucker nice. back to pucker <laughs> and you started having some problems with your back as this was all unfolding, didn't you? you yeah. 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 I yeah, had had for a couple of years, I just had tingling in my fingers in my left hand mm. on my, um, 
my pinky and the finger next to it. Um, and it just, it, I'd had it for, I think probably from second year ADFA, uh, but I just dealt with it and, you know, did not want to go to the RAP, did not want to go to sick parade, did not want to get uh, put on a, uh, any sort of restriction of duties or uh, jeopardize my progress just through. ignore it and um, keep, continue. Yeah. <laughs> Hope exactly. for the best. Apparently with spinal injuries, it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, the tingling never went away and a couple of times I was paralysed uh, from the neck down Shit. when I put my head in the wrong position and left it there. Yeah. And so, yeah, halfway through my ROBC, uh, I found myself down at a neurosurgeon's down in, uh, down in Melbourne and very quickly afterwards in, in surgery and then, uh, yeah, lost, basically lost, uh, I guess lost, lost my career. Like, you know, it all was sort of uh, gone pretty quickly from there. I was not deployable. I, I couldn't continue on with my, my uh, cohort from, uh, from the RBC. They all went back to their reg regimental positions and uh, I couldn't. So I, I was posted up to second 14th flight horse and uh, did uh, ACADGE up there and a little bit of work with some of the um, dismounted guys and, you know, some rangers because I had the range mm -hmm. poles. Um, but yeah, just sort of like, it was pretty, pretty turbulent time to be honest through 2002. Yeah, so shit. You um, spend what, three, four years training Yep. Um, including yeah. all your other courses you do once you've graduated and you're all set yep. up to, you know, Afghan was starting to kick off, Timor was going That's and right. then yep. you get in, yep. well, you've got this injury compression on the spine. How did that feel? That yeah. would have just been a kick in the freaking teeth. It was, it was horrible. Yeah. Uh, it just felt like uh, everything that I was focused on, everything I'd worked for and trained for was just gone. Um, and yeah, it was extremely hard to deal with. And I, Spent a lot of time, I actually was quite socially isolated for some of that time as well. Like I just, I was living by myself and everyone else was super busy with their jobs. Yep. Um, and there was times when I couldn't work. There was times when I'd go back to work and I'd have a lot of pain and a lot of issues with my neck. And uh, that was pretty distressing as well. Cause even trying to work in an office, like I'd be, um, it just, it was just, it just hurt. It hurt a lot. Yeah, and um, sucks. so that was really, really hard. And yes, the, the sort of social isolation, but I had a, a few good mates that were still around that um that I had a bit of time that I could still hang out with. So I managed to sort of get through it. And I just, I just focused a lot on, at the time on trying to find ways to be positive and to, um, to learn, to, to use the opportunity to, to keep my mindset mm -hmm. um, unfixed and open. And I, I read a lot, like, funnily enough, I, I did a lot of reading on um, quantum mechanics and, and uh, astrophysics. Yeah, right. Uh, just to, you know, get my brain working yep. and, and get, get my mind open and, uh, yeah, and in retrospect, like I, I see it as a, a definitely a period of post-traumatic growth. Like I, I went through uh, a pretty shit time, and I managed to refocus myself to make it a positive, to find to find the positives in it. So yeah, yeah, that's an awesome mindset because I know a lot of people in the same boat, staring down the barrel of a med discharge way before their time, um, haven't had a chance to deploy in that, and and it's just shit for them. They've got an identity yeah. that's fused with defence. Um, it's hard yep. for them to relate to people outside of defence. They join young and that's life. Like, yeah. yeah. So you you were med discharge um, yeah. and then you had to find your feet yep. again. Yeah. So 2003 I was uh, med discharged and then uh, couldn't work for about six months after that. And, uh, and actually, when I think about some of that social isolation time, it might have been after I met discharged. Um, maybe not when I was in, but anyway. Mm. Um, 
but yeah, about six months where I couldn't work and I was just on a pension and still in a lot of pain at that stage and uh, didn't, I wasn't allowed to do physical training for quite some time, which made it really difficult. And uh, yeah, and I just sort of, um, I fell in with a, a new group of people and sort of found some new friends in Brizzy where I'd, I'd, I'd been discharged and started, uh, I guess, like getting my self into some different social circles that were outside of the military, which was really novel, as you'd understand. Yeah. Like, you know, you just be, you become so so inwards looking in your friendship circles when you're in the army. Um, and that massively adds to that identity fusion because all your mates are exactly the same as you. Yes. So, and you can't uh, just rock up and drop the F-bomb in every second sentence. Yeah, that's right, exactly. <laughs> you're talking yeah, to people right. outside of your friends. It, it doesn't roll as well. Uh, yeah, I can actually remember, I remember going camping with a mate. Uh, it was a few years before yeah. this, but I, I went camping with a mate and he, and uh, some of his friends who were teachers. And we hadn't caught up since high school much. And uh, I found it really difficult to relate to them. I was just so in the army mindset. Yeah. And uh, I, f I found it really difficult. All I wanted to do the whole time I was there with those guys was to get away and go back yeah. to my mates. Um, I didn't probably recognize it or, or didn't trigger in my mind that that was an issue at the time. But um, when you look back on it, you can certainly see that that's, the, uh, that's that huge identity fusion going, which is part of the great tribal um, nature of the military, that you have this, this awesome close group of friends and you have that tribal feeling and you have this you know, incredible connection that then lasts on for the rest of your life. But um, there's definitely also some negatives in it as yeah. well. If that's, you know, if you don't have some more that's in it. your life. Yeah. And, and the family unit yeah. and those relationships out of defense suffer too. I know coming home, even yeah. just from an Afghan, like it was hard. It was like Australia felt like a yeah. really hostile place because, um, yeah. you know, over there I had a role, I had a job to do, saving lives, <laughs> really busy. Um, yep. And yep. with your mates that you know, so well um better than your own family sometimes and and then you're back yep. and you're just wandering around around woolies buying vegetables and you know like you're like what the <laughs> what what is this so yeah. it is that adjustment time for yep. sure yeah. yeah so how did you yep. did you think um this paramedic pathway was sort of something you were lining up or it didn't. It hadn't come into my mind. Um, and I, I went. I worked for Virgin, and then I travelled around oh. the world for a year. And it was during the time when I went travelling. Um, so I went travelling by myself um, for this year. And it was during that time that I think my mum emailed me and said, "There's this new thing called a paramedic degree, uh, which is happening at yep. QUT." And it was quite novel back then. You know, like there was there was no. I mean, Bathurst, Charles Sturt. Yep. Uh, that might have been, or there might have been, there would have had to be one at Victoria, I guess. There certainly was no degrees in Queensland or uh, any other states that I'm aware of. And uh, mum just emailed me out of the blue and said, oh, would you think about this? And I thought, oh, that sounds like a pretty good idea. Um, and I was going through this process of trying to come up with what my next step would be. And I didn't know if I was going to come back for travelling, to be honest. Like I was, um, I was quite comfortable with the fact that maybe I would end up in, you know, living in um, Montenegro in South America <laughs> or something. I don't know. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, and I was, I was open to anything that might come out of it. And um, I got offered a couple of jobs like contracting in the Middle East uh, during that time, but probably wisely um, said no to them at the time. They were like gunslinging. I'm definitely not a gunslinger, so <laughs> it would have been uh, not, not the best outcome. Uh, and then I, yeah, I just, I spent a lot of time thinking about what I would do when I came back to Australia. And... Uh, 
uh, I reverse engineered from what I wanted in a in a job back to uh, what was left in on the on the table once I sort of got rid of the the ones that didn't yeah. fit the criteria. And the criteria were, were really simple. It was like you know I need I need a, a sense of service, um, which you know I had a really strong feeling um, as a result of the military. Um, I need a uh, I need to be outdoors and in different environments all the time. I need to be out in an environment where I've got to make rapid decisions and think on my feet. And I needed to be academic because mm. I'm, I'm you know really interested in, in studying further and, and being engaged on a um, on an yeah. academic level. So, uh, like, you know, something that's cerebral, not just something where you're just doing yeah. all the time. And, and you uh, got your team. Yeah, like, you got your new team. And you got – absolutely, yep. Got a feeling of belonging within that team. Um, and, yeah, it, it was pretty much the only job that I had left um, from the things that I thought about was – and then I was like, oh, and mum sent me this email. Cool. I'll go back and uh, – Go to QUT, so I applied while I was overseas, and then uh, and then came back and, and yeah. studied at QUT. And did the um, Queensland ambulance push back with your med history, or they were like, "Sure, lift the stretcher, mate. We're happy. <laughs> we'll take you." Yeah, they weren't too they worried. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Not in any way whatsoever. I can't even remember anything. When I when I went from ACT to New South Wales ambulance, I did get a. Uh, a fairly intense medical um, because I, I did the initial medical. And they're like, "Oh, I'm not sure yeah. about your neck injury." Uh, yeah, I can't even remember. Like for Queensland, I don't think there was really anything much. Though, right? Yes. Because I mean, it was a pretty. And now they have got a lot of things to help them lift and automatic stretches and um, stuff like that. But even back then, yeah. it, it was there was a lot of manual handling, and yeah, still is in the job, I guess. Yeah, big time, and I, re- I can remember, you know, back with the old stretches, um, like before, you know, and I, I almost really haven't had any time on road with the like the um, the powered yep. stretches, like the strikers and stuff. Um, pretty much my whole time when I was working in ambulances was with uh, the old uh, manual ones. I, I can remember just almost every shift you had a mm. sore back, like it was just what you because you did did seven to eight to maybe ten, twelve uh, lifts of a stretcher into the back of the yep. ambulance every day. And every single one of them put a stone yeah, in your Not back. to mention carrying that person down three flights of stairs and all your gear up three yeah, flights of stairs. Right. And yeah, yeah. Absolutely, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So you worked part-time while you were studying, which was an awesome kind of model um, to do a paramedical science yeah. degree. Um, yeah. What sort of shocked or surprised you about those early days of clinical practice? You'd lived and you'd travelled, but did you walk into anything and yep. think, what the heck? Like, yeah, I, I I loved the um the big jobs uh, when they came. Like I loved the the just the the big the trauma and of, the you know, MPA, big, yep. big trauma, yep, yep. Um, I, but I, I think uh, what I wasn't quite prepared for was the personal side of it, the emotional sort of yep. personal side of it. Um, and that definitely hit me harder. Like, I, yeah, the, I, I found the, the big traumas and the big jobs quite easy, or not easy, um, quite easy to deal with in your mind, you know, like um, that d- it didn't really unsettle me or surprise me massively. You're expecting um, that and you do did... your best and you, yeah. yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yep, that's right. Uh, but, yeah, it was the, uh, I can remember um, sitting with a, a an older man. He was probably only in his 50s. Um, and he had terminal cancer and he was on his way to palliative care yeah. and uh, his wife was saying goodbye to him. He's got in the ambulance. He looked really unwell. And I just remember like just ch- holding back tears as I'm sitting there with him and just, you know, just the, the story, the, the sadness of the family. And it, it, I'd, I'd say I rep- that that was replicated a lot across a lot of other jobs yep. that I did You're as well. You're literally leaving um, home with him a... for the last time. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I can remember a, a job where 
Uh, well, actually, I can remember my first cardiac arrest in Queensland. I remember it mostly in retrospect because we used to wear like a light blue mm. shirt. And uh, in summer in Brisbane, as soon as you start doing compressions, you just yeah. start sweating. And uh, so back in those days, the guys were like, oh, Matty's the new fella. So yeah. he's on the chest. And so, you know, I was just on the chest for like half an hour, <laughs> uh, which we would never, ever do now. But... No fatigue involved <laughs> no, in that. That's... <laughs> yeah, that's right. We know it's super yeah. suboptimal and, and uh, gives the person almost yeah. no chance anyway. of survival. But anyway, um, <laughs> we're too busy trying to intubate yeah. and give adrenaline and all these things that we know that now don't work. But anyway, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm on the chest. And I, I, I do remember that first cardiac arrest, like just sort of seeing the faces of the family around me. And I've, I've yeah, definitely mm. say that's something that's got me a whole bunch of jobs um, in the in the future after this. But that first one, just seeing the people in that periphery of where you're working and you're working with people, you know, there's a little bit of black humour and some banter and stuff amongst the paramedics yep. quietly um, on, on most of those jobs. But uh, you can sort of just see in the, in, the, in the periphery, the people who are really affected by the fact that this family member is now dead Correct. in the house. Yeah, you've walked and, into um, their environment yeah, on their what's... terms. And yep. I think ambos are amazing for the yeah. way they just relate from one job to the next, you know, you're talking to a homeless person, then five minutes later you're in the wealthiest yep. neighbourhood with someone who's super yeah. well-educated and you just develop that rapport really fast, figure out what's going on yeah. and, yeah, it's yep. incredible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I can actually, I can, I can quite distinctly remember a time when I uh, cracked it on a night shift. I was, uh, there was a little kid that had fallen, hit the head and had absolutely nothing wrong with them and the mum and dad were freaking out at sort of 2am. Mm. And in Sydney, and uh, I remember getting really cranky with them because it had affected me because I had to get up and go to this job and I didn't want to be there. And uh, I just remember reflecting on it afterwards. Like as soon as you lose that uh, that ability to have the rapport and to care and have empathy with people, then you really need to start thinking about what yeah, you're you doing need a holiday. And I, you know, yeah, um, you do, you do. Yeah, and I, like you know, like I many many years after that of of being a paramedic, but uh, yeah, you just need to chill out, tune out for a bit, get a get a few days off, like you know. Uh, yeah, like it's compassion fatigue, isn't it? Compassion fatigue. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Total compassion fatigue. Yep. Yeah, yeah. You've just used up everything in your cup, and uh, you just mm. need to refill it. And yeah, yeah. You then move to ACT and become a intensive care yep. paramedic. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Which was great, and uh, good. <laughs> I'd like to say good to be back in Canberra, but it was freezing <laughs> cold or boiling hot. Um, <laughs> Didn't um, go to any jobs that um, you're all training ground to <laughs> roll anyone into a recovery <laughs> position at 3 a.m. Or... <laughs> we won't talk about that. <laughs> I, actually... <laughs> well, I actually didn't. I've never thought about that, but no, I never did a job yeah, in right. Adra or Duntroon. Not one. <laughs> yeah, worked there for three and a half years. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, maybe maybe the uh, change in the drinking culture that mm. happened after I, um, you know, after the yes. 2000s. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how'd you find that transition between services? Was it easy to pick up in another state and carry on? Yeah, I, both times that I've transitioned across to, to a new service, I've found it, uh, it politically and uh, mechanistically, as in like, you know, the, the way the radios mm -hmm. work and where you are and what the hospitals do, um, a little bit challenging to start with, but not too hard to bridge. But um, from the actual job, like absolutely yeah. the same you know like you're wearing a different uniform you've got a different set of uh protocols or guidelines you're uh, you're supposed to work in different ways and everyone says that it's so different and you start working on road and it's exactly the same as soon as you're talking to a patient or doing a job uh it's yeah it's just, exactly it's just the, the procedures yeah. and the specifics of that AI yeah. that change i guess yeah yeah 
That's right. And and yeah. just on yep. the uniform, like, didn't they go away from those light blue shirts because um, Ambos were getting assaulted more because people thought they were cops and that? Yeah. But, yeah, so yeah. they went to yeah, white yeah, for a right. bit, which yeah. is really a very difficult clinical colour. And then, yep. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Back to the green well and navy. Blood. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then a few years later again, um, into New South Wales, was that moved yep. so that you could get into that um, special operations role or? Uh, no, to be honest, it was, uh, that was a, a nice aspect of it, but uh, my wife was from Sydney and so that was the intent was to move back there. So um, I met her in South America when I was traveling and uh, she was from Sydney. And then uh, we, when it came time to come home from uh, back to Australia, she'd said, uh, look, you know, uh, you, I'm not going to move. I'm not going to leave Sydney. Basically, it's where my friends are. It's where yeah. my life is. And I said, "Cool, no worries." I've, the only place that I can go to get to uni that down there is in Charles Sturt at Bathurst, which sort of defeats the purpose because it's not in Sydney. Um, so in the end, uh, she decided to move up, and uh, so she moved up to Brisbane. And we lived in a in a share house with like a few of my old army mates, and uh, and one of the girls that I used to work at Virgin with in this like awesome little place, a couple of k's out of the out of the city in Kelvin Grove, and uh, mm-hmm. right next to the uni, and just had, like it was awesome, like just a great lifestyle while we lived there. Um, but then yeah, uh, we were supposed to go back to Sydney after that. So the plan was after three years in Queensland, get qualified yep. as a paramedic, head back to Sydney. Um, but I went through the recruitment process with New South Wales Ambulance at the end of my degree and I just had this like super horrible uh, ex- experience with them like they I, I said look I'm coming down as a qualified paramedic and they said no you're not you've just come out of your degree I was like well I'm, I'm a, they qualify us, us as an advanced care paramedic because we do road time through the yeah. whole degree and they said oh that, well you know that's not the way that we're seeing it so you know and, and it ended up like having a lady yelling at me on the phone like just wow. yeah it was just a really <laughs> horrible experience. And I, I sort of got the feeling that I didn't want to be there, you know, if, they, if that's what it was like at the front door, that yeah. maybe I didn't want to go to the yeah. service. Uh, and at the same time, the ICP um, grad program came up um, as I was going through New South Wales ambulance recruitment. I was like, you know what? Screw you. I'm out of here. Like, and I uh, went down ACT. So your wife just time. had to wait a few um, more years to get closer to her family again. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not, mind you, she never never really came to Canberra. Like she just came down yeah. every now and then. Yeah, well, that's the benefit, I guess. A couple of hours down the Hume, and you're yeah. there. Yeah, that's right. And her parents lived in the Southern Highlands, and uh, we had a uh, uh, they got a, like a family house down the, down the South Coast Beautiful. as well. So we just you know four on four off. Like every four off, I was either in the Southern Highlands or Sydney or down south south at yeah. Kyola. So yeah, it was uh, it was actually a really really nice way to way to do it and um and i just when i was in canberra i was just working doing my my 12-hour day shifts 14-hour night shifts and nice. getting through it so yeah um, the reason the real reason that i went back to that i moved to new south wales ambulance was because um that's where uh, my wife had said we would end up and that's where we and they up. were a bit more receptive <laughs> second time around they thought yep all right actually this guy might be crazy. all right <laughs> yeah totally Absolutely. I just got, I came straight in as an ICP. I did a quick clinical interview, uh, had no problems with recruitment. And, uh, and then I was on road, I did five weeks in the classroom just to learn the New South Wales way yeah. of doing things. And then I was out on road for, you know, um, like a seven, oh, nine weeks, I think it was nine or 10 weeks um, before I was given my ICP um, rank back again. And then Good to go. So yeah, the second time around, it was like a, a worlds apart. I don't know what happened in between. Well, just or... speaking their language, you know, they understood what an IC was, but maybe not yeah. the degree you'd done. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I guess it was like it was only brand new. This the way that Q, mm. QUT had run the degree, so maybe yeah, 
Um, and I, I always like, because I, because I had such a bad experience with that, I, I really hoped that registration would change some things. And I, I don't know what it's like now, but I hope, I really hope that it's made uh, paramedics around Australia much more portable because I think it, you should be able to change uh, services and yeah. it shouldn't be d that difficult. We're doing the same job and yeah, you need to learn some uh, technical stuff around the way that, uh, you know, you, you operate in a, in a vehicle and in a service. Uh, but apart from that, like your paramedics doing the job, so it should yeah, be. Yeah, hands on with the patient. That doesn't change. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. 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 So can you give us just a rundown of some of that structure in um, New South Wales Ambulance in particular? They've got um, special operations, they've got AME, they've got these little niche um, capabilities you can progress through. Yep. So, and, and that's, that is definitely something that was very attractive about New South Wales Ambulance was just those different sort of streams you can go into. So, yeah. um, and they're, they're essentially like as an on-road paramedic, you can go into being an extended care paramedic, an intensive care paramedic, uh, doing special operations. Uh, and then, yeah, obviously um, being on care flight on the rapid trauma response helicopter or, or on HEMS around the state yep. doing uh, rescue helicopter work. Um, there was, there's also a motorbike uh, capability in town. Uh, yeah, I think it's just got like snow. Lots of snow. Yeah, snowfields. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Down at, down at Jindy, um, they've got a snowfields team that work out there during the winter from Southern Operations. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, and it's, do it's, they have right. like um, a CBRN capability, or is that all left to fire? Uh, so that's within Special Operations. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. you hold that piece too. Yeah, yeah. that's right. So um, skipping ahead a little bit, when I was um, in 2017. Uh, I jumped on as the first civilian paramedic on the, the SOA uh, CBRN tactical mm -hmm. medical retrieval course. Um, and then we, through that relationship, we continued sending special operations paramedics on that course and just built, a, from my mind, a lot more collaboration across that space. So that, because um, SOA, you know, hold a, a heap of expertise in that. And uh, yes. that really enabled us within special ops to bring up our capability and renew our training and all, all the training iterations we, di we did. Um, so when, as an instructor on, on SOT and rescue courses from there on, we brought SOA medics in to work with us and they were awesome. You know, they'd come and bring their, their um, subject, subject matter expertise and that really helped along with it. And I think any time you collaborate, any time you get people together um, from different domains, it's awesome. And yeah, definitely pay dividends for both sides from SOA and from and New South Wales. Yeah. Absolutely. And just yeah. um, exercises and training, wearing all that gear and doing yep. those fine motor skills that you need to do to do your job. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, yeah. So back, back to the organ organizational structure. So uh, extended care paramedics do um, all primary care, primary care work. They also work as paramedics on road, but they've got um, single response models where they do a whole bunch of low acuity work. But um, yeah, really um, super cool uh, capability. And I think it's, it's a great extra stream and possibility for paramedics to get into because they expand their clinical knowledge and uh, probably also just as importantly, like they expand their decision-making processes. They do more assessments, more thorough assessments with an expanded knowledge base and therefore make more decisions rather than just taking people to hospital. Um, yeah. And I, to me, that's a, like a, been a huge game changer down there. Um, it's probably not expanded and been uh, promoted well enough. I don't think, um, by the whole service, but the impact it's had on non-transports and giving better outcomes to patients has been huge. Well, the flow on just for not clogging up an ED would be huge. So it's yeah. <laughs> a win-win across the whole of the system. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Hmm. 
Um, yep. So rescue, rescue was essentially they rescue was much bigger, and then uh, there was. I think around 2008, 2009, uh, New South Wales Ambulance got rescue taken off them in Sydney and it all went to foreign rescue and police. Okay. Uh, and then there's, there's just a, a few stations left, I think seven or eight um, stations around the around the country areas like Wagga, um, down at Bombardieri near Nowra, up at Tamworth and a, and a few other places. Okay. And Special Operations was born out of that. So essentially when they, when they closed out and rescue, that's what Special Operations was formed from. Yeah, so you guys could um, do all the ground-based stuff. You could, what, rappel down a cliff to get to somebody, yep. um, do that chemical, biological piece if need be, and just yep. those tricky, yep. um, more austere environments that you wouldn't expect a road crew general duties to just walk into. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. You know, down a bush track, even, you know, just getting out of your ambulance, going down a bush track and having to think differently about the way you yeah. do that job. Um, anything to do with like, you know, difficult extrication. I did heaps of work as a, um, a SOT paramedic on beaches, or the northern mm. beaches particularly, um, where I was working. Um, just because as soon as you've got to get someone from the sand to the vehicle, uh, you normally work in houses as a paramedic, not always, but most of the time. And uh, sand and beaches don't no. work well with the gear that they've got. So... <laughs> Yeah, just um, even even just that aspect, like just being able to get someone quickly uh, from the beach into the ambulance is like yeah. a really good part of the special operations. Um, uh, yeah, program. absolutely. Yeah, you don't think about that till you're on there and you're trying to put a dressing on, and there's all That's right. <laughs> sand everywhere. Sand everywhere. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or as as I had once uh, down in. Um, uh, Manly uh, d down near the harbour, and uh, I was on a, on a little beach. Uh, we'd it was quite a walk in um, through the bush from Balgala, and then uh, a mate of mine actually winched it, um, out of the helicopter down to me. And the amount of sand, like I thought my skin was from the downdraft, my, my body, just yeah, sand. yeah, <laughs> directly overhead. Fun time. You don't think about that, do no. you? No. <laughs> and uh, when you did the course, did it include any of that tactical stuff? You've gone and worked really closely with the police and that, but were you equipped to, you know, go to a siege, go to a um, tactical environment where there was still a hostile threat in the way you would in the military and not be, I guess, a liability? Were you, was that covered initially? It, very, very, very shallow covering yeah. of that, really. Um, so we had a... Uh, uh, we had the TRU come along and uh, two of the police from the TRU took us through uh, setting up an OP in a green roll um, and walking in and out of it in a in a more discreet sort of mm -hmm. bushcraft manner um, for about half a day and looked at how to pack a bag uh, into and going into the bush. Um, yeah. And that was about it. That was pretty much the limit of it. So, yeah, there was really, uh, really nothing. We did a little tiny bit with the right squad, but um, not, a, not a bunch. So yeah, it was uh, it was a capability in 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 my mind. It was a capability in in name mm -hmm. only. Um, there was no effective training or equipment or um, real thought as to the procedures behind it. I know in the past they had done more when when SCAT was um, uh, much bigger and uh, they would they were the ones before special ops that were working with yep. police mostly. They had done a bunch more training, um, but yeah, it seemed like it had been lost somewhere in the system when they transferred across to special ops. Yeah, we like to rename things every few years and then we lose we <laughs> yeah, lose right. part of a capability that we needed <laughs> in the process sometimes. So, and, you know, and someone gets yeah. a medal for a good idea way up the chain. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> the army's no different. Um, yeah. Exactly. So um, 2014, 
and the Lint Cafe Siege. What was your role on that day? Um, so as a SOT paramedic, I'd been called in for the night shift just to uh, be part of the, the, the overall SOT mm-hmm. response. So we had uh, some guys that were in armour, but the, that armour was level two, level two um, which is like uh, can stop a, a slow handgun round. That's about it. Um, not so powerful. Um, and some big old uh, tin helmets and, uh, and some bush packs, like, you know, bush packs that we uh, responded into uh, bush jobs when we walked out to go retrieve patients that were, you know, down a long way down a bush track. We had specific packs that worked really well in that environment. Um, And we could also use them in in a vertical environment. They had like, you know, um, rated stitching and stuff like that. So you could, you could use them to um, underneath you on a harness or down on a rope. Uh, But they were the same packs we used across the tactical um, setting as well. Uh, so no, not as good in an urban not, setting, not doing good. what you're doing. No, not when yeah. you're, like they're, they're basically set up so that you can access them slowly and everything's in little bum bags within, inside them and then you open them up and then everything sort of falls right. out. So if you're set in, in a bush uh, setting, great for that, but yeah, no good at all for tactical. Um, you want to be able to, yeah, rip open the hemorrhage control stuff yep. and get into it. Absolutely. Yeah. That's right. And then, yeah, and when you get to a safer environment, dig in your bag and do those advanced skills. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously TCCC was really huge in the military and that continuum comes through. I think we learn a lot in 20 years in the MEO, but those advances in medical care have been really slow to filter into civilian ambulance services yeah. and hospitals across Australia, haven't they? Like Absolutely. even things like um, tranexamic acid, yep. proper arterial tourniquets, yep. we're talking hemostatic gauze. Um, so this was a capability when Lint happened that we hadn't fully prepped for did you feel yeah absolutely so if you look at um what we didn't have is probably even better than saying what we had um yeah so we didn't have chest seals uh arterial tourniquets yeah we had them but they were the mat which had a really bad um quite well documented failure rate um and mm. big clunky bits of plastic and they had little springs in it which used to come off all the time um so we had a tourniquet but it was terrible um we had no training on tourniquets. We, look, hemorrhage control was never trained on um, in ambulance. So when I was at uni in, in, up in Brizzy, uh, I remember doing a uh, assessment in first year where you had to put a tourniquet on someone and then you had to release after two minutes for five minutes and then tighten it back up for two minutes and release for five minutes. <laughs> so you're just slowly bleeding slowly them to death? Out. Yeah, so this is 2006. Yeah. So by 2006, like I now know, and you know, most of um, your audience would know, uh, that by that time, like we had the, the rangers doing uh, TCCC, like Ranger Buddy Care. Mm-hmm. Um, we had lots of papers coming out already that, you know, um, that, that's 10 years after March, Frank Butler. DRC. Yeah, we had yeah. March always. Yeah, it was all out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yet here we are, like putting a tourniquet on then releasing it for five minutes out of every seven um, to oh. bleed the patient to death. Uh yeah. It's it's just insane to think that, and then you know, 2014, we've got a, a siege with potentially you know mass casualties in a, uh, a a tactical environment. We've got no training or equipment specific to it, so no uh, no hemostatics, not even not even um, the skill of wound packing in yeah. ambulance, you know, let alone you know, let alone having hemostatics, like not even the especially for junctional bleeds, yeah. gunshot wounds, yep. and the shoulders groin. That's right. Yep. Yeah, nothing. Places nothing you can't like... put a tourniquet yep. on. Yeah. So no, go- no, not, not, not even getting a roller bandage and packing it in. That wasn't even something that was considered, let alone taught. So, uh, yeah, there were some massive deficiencies there, I think. And then uh, to the, the, the 
ability for that to all be put together in a, an overall training package and a clinical governance system and particularly um, you know, a system that has the right equipment for the practitioners that are using it, that, that was definitely not there. Yeah. And I guess it's not just about the medical consumables. It's really a mindset thing, yep. isn't it? Looking at threat, um, just operating in a way that's efficient, making decisions yep. Yep. <laughs> in a timely and appropriate manner, um, not getting that tunnel vision, yep. not having your adrenaline sore to the point where you've never worked under operational stress and now you are. Yep. Um, those are all so important and I, look, I know in my workplace now I talk about stuff like that and people look at me like I'm an alien. <laughs> why why aren't we rehearsing our mass cas drill, yep. you know, just because you live in, and work in a regional area? like the, I think the mindset in Australia at the time was it's not going to happen. Yeah. It's not going to happen to us. That's right. But yep. it has and it probably will happen again, unfortunately. And you just got to, you know, look at Madrid, yep. <laughs> the London bombings, yep. um, Christchurch. There's so many examples. Yeah. Of um, and and Lint was horrific, and but it wasn't as complex as it could have been. Absolutely. You know, there was yeah. no secondary device. There was yep. no bomb. There was no um, there was no uh, responders injured. Yep. Were there? No, I don't think. No, there was a police officer, but no, no, no ambulance. So it, it could have it could have been a lot worse. Yeah, hey, like yeah. yeah. Yep. No, yeah. absolutely. And that's and that's why I felt like it was a missed opportunity immediately to to learn from it because we looked at um, from a medical point of view, we looked at how we went with the job that happened instead of looking at how we could have gone with the job that didn't happen. Um, yeah. And that, and that would have changed things completely. And then you know, 2015, uh, the Paris complex coordinated terrorist attacks and uh, mm. I mean, like the ones you just mentioned and then a thousand others you know like there was just so exactly. many attacks happening through that period and uh, like our presentations to ambulance during the, and also to our uh, like when we built the training packages after Lint um, for SOT and rescue paramedics like we, we there was like three hours just on the threat because there was so many examples you know a Toya Island in Norway or San Bernardino uh, in, in the US it was just it was non-stop mm. all these active armed defender incidents that were occurring um, with huge complexity and then you know 2019 Christchurch um with like Las Vegas it happened before that like it was just yeah uh yeah the, the fact that it hasn't happened here has been like a, a tribute to the great intelligence work and the and the policing that's occurred and, yeah to to foil those attacks that would have happened otherwise yeah yeah, yeah. so uh take me back to Lint and um you're called in for your night shift you rock up early because you're keen as mustard and <laughs> this is what you've been training for for, you know, since you joined the ADF, really. Absolutely. Like, yeah, yeah you, you've got that mindset and I think people don't understand. You don't want bad things to happen, but when they do, you want to be there and exactly. and test yourself and, and do the best you can. Yep. So, right. yeah, you turn up and what was, yeah, was your pumped. role to be? Yeah, so my role was to be basically run the triage tents. So SOT has uh, these um, uh, MCI vehicles and uh, my job was to drive, or actually was already there, but to go take over that vehicle and the gear that comes in it. So essentially that's triage tents, setting up like a number of coloured tents and um, mm -hmm. and just having that area sort of ready to go. Um, there's a bunch of stretches in there if they need them. Um, it was, but, but, to be honest, not not a completely not a, not a great um, fit for design for for MCI response, uh, but it's what yeah. we had. So that was my job. So set it all up and then uh, yeah, you know, just felt like uh, from there, no one was interested in doing anything else or talking about what we were going to do with these triage tents. 
So they'd set up a traditional triage kind of zone and you'd get people from the scene, you'd wheel them through, Matt Pepper yep. would triage them and then yeah. delegate Alpha Bravo Charlie yep. or whatever you want to call it and yeah, yep, from there. Yeah, so I was, I was in charge of the what, what uh, you'd probably call the, the, the choke point. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Stopping yep. patients from getting quickly to, uh, to hospital. <laughs> and, you know, one of the big learnings that came out of London Bridge Borough Markets was that patients that had uh, central torso stabbing wounds uh, who really needed to be in surgery as quickly as possible do not need to go through multiple levels of triage, you know, through a, a casualty collection point, then a casualty clearing station, then into an ambulance loading point, re-triaged yeah. that, that whole time, and then, you know, an hour and a half spit out the other side and finally get to hospital because they're dead by the time you get them there. Those patients need to be... Have, have some sort of tactical triage process, you know, which um, it's a whole another discussion, but mm. like, you know, 10 second triage, which has come out in the UK from, from Claire Park and, and Sean Harrison, those guys, amazing system to rapidly determine priorities for treatment and then transport uh, without stuffing around and, and yeah. slowing down the whole process. Um, that, that, yeah, which we did implement. We brought in uh, RAMP, Rapid Assessment of Mentation and Pulse, um, into uh, okay. Special Ops, and that was... We trained everybody on it and, and, and left that as a, an awesome legacy. Um, but yeah, those things, we, we weren't thinking about any of those things back in 2014, unfortunately. Um, but when you think, when you look at uh, the experience of the military, like we should have been, but, you know, TCCC was out, March was out, and, uh, mm. and there was a lot of experience with mass casualty response with, uh, with, with uh, tactical incidents overseas, with, with bombing, with IEDs, yeah. with uh, gunshot wounds, or both. Um, and yet we weren't really transferring any of that knowledge across to the civilian sector. Mm. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just thinking like some of the mass CAS events I've been to and that I've never used a formal triage system. And once you've been a clinician for a while, you do a body sweep, you're looking for injuries and you can quickly determine, you know, priority. Yeah. You need to be seen quickly That's or right. you'll die. It's, and it's, and yeah. in, if a triage system doesn't have... Uh, the application of life-saving interventions in it, then you, by the time you've triaged everyone, they're all dead. Anyone that's going to die is now Correct. dead because you haven't done anything about their bleeding yes, or their airway. Yes, if you're not putting that tourniquet yep. on or yep, rolling yeah, rolling them over at least. Absolutely. Yeah. And then also, you know, like the, the yeah. big elephant in the room there is like, you know, when you're using your, cl your clinical uh, judgment to make those decisions, you're not trying to take a pulse. You're not trying to remember an algorithm. You're not trying to take a uh, get a cap refill or take someone's respiratory rate in a setting where you're under huge stress, massive physiological response it's to that dark, stress. Yeah, noisy. it's dark, noisy, smoky, bloody. Yep. Uh, yeah, the, 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 all those things stop you from applying triage. And, every, and you know, and everything I've ever looked mm. at from a triage point of view, all the people on the scene, particularly at AAO or uh, complex coordinated terrorist attacks, they say that they couldn't apply triage because it was it was impossible to recall it and impossible to apply it. Yeah. Yeah. Or you can feel it's your own pulse. That's right, yeah. So you set up your triage area and you're kind of ready to go. You're like, are we done to do a rehearsal? What's the plan? Yeah, I didn't yeah. actually even set up the triage area, to be honest. Like, they, um, I asked the question. Yeah, it was like, no, 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 um, don't worry about that. We'll just put, we'll just load them all in ambulances. And I was like, right, okay, there's a lot of ambulances, yes. Okay. But that's, uh, that's not really good planning. That's not, a, not 
And uh, what if, but what if, you know, what if the, what if there is a device and we have more patients than we do ambulances? What do we do then? Yeah, like, yeah it was just, and it was just complete yeah. uh, disregard for the fact that something might actually happen. It was just complete complacency. And uh, I found it very, very hard to be there. It's uh, you know, um, being ex-military, yeah. you know, you're, you're, you're used to planning and preparing and rehearsing and, um, yeah, that yeah. definitely wasn't the case. And that was pretty frustrating because when it, when it went down, we didn't really know what we were doing. We just ran in and tried to make it work, which, you know, we did what we could with what we had. And uh, we did we did a good job with uh, with what we were presented with, but um, we could have done better. Mm -hmm. And if it had been worse, we could have um, been really exposed and, and our patients would have had terrible outcomes as a result of that. So what happened when those gunshots ran out? So I was, I'd just been in uh, Channel 7 doing a wee and uh, <laughs> I said, okay, I'm running out and heard some gunshots. And then uh, I heard over the radio, um, the call was made, all SOT resources moved to uh, the end of Martin Place. And I didn't know whether that meant, um, like, does that mean all SOT paramedics or does that mean all our vehicles? Or like, So I actually jumped in the MCI car and just drove it to the other side of Martin Place thinking, oh, do they, is that the resource they want? Like, I, like, I don't know. Yep. So I just moved, drove that over and then uh, jumped out of it. And then I just saw um, people starting to, to move up the, the, um, the sort of little uphill section to Martin Place. So I just ran up there as well. And, uh, you know, when I think, <laughs> now with uh, all the training and the systems we've implemented, probably not a great idea to move straight in without any direction or understanding of what I was moving into. But um, I would have done, I'd do that again every, yeah. every day. You know, you like got a reflex to help. Yeah, you got, exactly. Yeah. That's right. And you just move towards where the action is. So, yeah, just sort of cruise on up the uh, up the place, and then uh, found patients out on the footpath that uh, Ollie and some other guys have been moving them out. Dan and and those guys have been moving them out from inside the cafe. And uh, mm. so yeah, it was like sort of five patients. So I just started moving from the one to the other and uh, just doing exactly like you just described, like a bit of an informal triage, using some clinical judgment, looking for. Essentially, I was like, what can I do to value add to these people? And, uh, none with of your first... skill set. Yeah, yeah, with my skill set. So none of the f yeah. first few people seemed to need to have anything. So I had a quick chat with them and just, you know, uh, moved on and then did the same, then moved on. And uh, then I saw a, uh, a crew doing um, CPR on um, a, a patient. So I went over there because I knew that I could, if, it, if it's a, a traumatic cardiac arrest, they don't need CPR. They need um, some rapid uh application of potentially preventable cause of death, um, some interventions like, you know, decompression and maybe an advanced airway. Um, so I went over there and, uh, and started getting some decompression stuff out. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's when the, the guys sort of came out of the cafe and said um, some code word, which I can't remember exactly what it was. But it was like, it was like what? What, what, what are you saying? And they're like, just get the hell out of here. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> so you hadn't been briefed in no. on the police. No. language for that op and, that's right yeah. <laughs> so I was like, oh. and they're thinking there could be another device you exactly that's right yeah. it was the bomb squad that were coming out i, I, I think in the tau who, who was sort of yelling that to us like code crimson or something and i was like well what the hell's code crimson um so that was quite confusing and they were like oh right okay we have to get out of here so we we picked up uh we picked up the patient tori and um uh, alex was next to me and he, as he went to pick him up he, he his hands essentially you know went felt that his back of his skull was missing. He looked at it and he's like, oh my God, he's been shot in the back of the head. And we didn't even realize that uh, at the time. Yeah. And that just goes back to, you know, once again, we're in 2014, but we haven't uh, applied March uh, or any sort of like tactile, tactile assessment of a patient, like a rapid trauma yeah. assessment that we would do now. Um, we should know that like straight away. Like we should, but instead we were just focused on just doing, just doing our normal, applying our normal ambulance approach that we do in any house to a tactical incident. 
and it doesn't work in those sorts of settings. Mm. And so, yeah, we, we, we put him on a stretcher and went down uh, to the other end of the of Martin Place with everyone else as we left. And then um, I jumped to the back with Katrina, uh, who'd been shot in the... Oh, she'd had a, some fragments of bullets that had gone in through her back and, and pierced her aorta. And, um, and I, I treated her on the way into RPA and we handed her over there in the yeah. ED. Was uh, there anyone on scene who could do like a thoracotomy potentially for a patient like her? No, there wasn't, but there was uh, uh, a couple of HEMS doctors nearby. Yeah. Um, but they hadn't, they hadn't been positioned in a place where they could be useful. Pulled, yeah. Yeah, which is, once again, you know, and that, and that comes down to some of those, well, in my in my mind, I believe that it would come down to some of those um, cultural divides within services uh, where you have people who, don't want the helicopter doctors nearby or, you know, they don't, we'll, we'll do this ourselves. We don't need those guys to help us. Instead of finding the best assets, the best resources, communicating, collaborating and bring them together, uh, there was sort of the opposite. Who's making that decision? Is that police with overall command of that situation or the senior ambulance scene controller? Like, Yeah, that'd be them, yeah, the ambulance controllers them. that would be doing yeah. that. Yeah, because the police yeah. wouldn't designate where medical resources go yeah uh, but set exclusion zones as to where they can't go but it would be yeah it would have been ambulance decisions as to where as to not bring those guys forward and yeah once again like you know may, probably uh wouldn't have had any impact but maybe mm. you never know maybe they could have maybe yeah. like with a, with a, a clamshell economy who knows um but you would you would want every possible uh resource that you've got available to you to be available there for those patients when things go down yeah maybe that was um they're worried about, you know, that bomb going off too. You know, they've yeah. got to take the intel they're getting from the police and try and make a tactical decision about not putting more lives in danger. But yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. So pretty hectic day. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we're always our own harshest critics as clinicians. We're naturally reflective and want to continually improve our practice. Um, how did you feel after Lint? Did you get a debrief that night? I felt like the um, I felt a bit let down with the debriefing. We did a debrief um in as the sun was coming up back at Special Ops headquarters um, mm. and that was that was good. But I was sort of waiting for a bit more, and then uh, and we did it. We got a uh, we had a, a, a uh, what do you call it like a, a, a psychologist come and um, uh, speak to us before we left uh, the city, uh, which was good. Um, but then. There was no, yeah, there, I was not, well, I wasn't involved in any debriefing anyway after that. Uh, I think there might have been some more debriefing that occurred, but um, certainly, you know, from the perspective of the responders, we didn't have a chance to even feed anything into that. Um, yeah. And I was doing, you know, I was, I was still working on road, just doing my thing. And uh, I guess like I was spending some, some considerable amount of time and energy trying to find out ways that we could do things better. Um, mm -hmm. And wondering how I could pr try and implement that. And uh, that's what I, I, I the boss of special ops Keith actually um, uh, said to me something about a Churchill fellowship because I've been trying, I've been agitating and I've been trying to, you know, say what, what are we doing about this? Like, how, how are we improving our training? What are, what are we going to do to make this better? 
and uh, he sort of flicked me the idea and he said, oh, have you looked into this Churchill Fellowship thing? And uh, I was sitting at working as an ICP at, at uh, Ride Station at the time for, for a couple of months off the sock car. And I was sitting there on night shift. And I looked it up and I had uh, something like 12 hours to apply. <laughs> so, <laughs> Better get right in something. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> so probably, Nothing probably, like under pressure. <laughs> <laughs> just like being back at ADFA, you know, like I've got uh, yeah. five, five hours to write my essay because I haven't done anything yet. <laughs> Running down to the library to submit it. Well, I'm um, sure you're a man that works pretty well under pr- pressure. So <laughs> probably. Yeah, yeah self, self-created, exactly. Probably your best work. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I, I very quickly got the application together, got it in and uh, went through an interview process, uh, which was one of the toughest interviews um, like I've ever done in my life. It was a few, uh, two interviews. Um, and yeah. essentially, they, they bring you in there and they just pull you apart. You know, like the first one's uh, your project, your idea. They just pull the whole idea about it. And, you know, they're like... Well, what, what's a, what's important about this? Like it's got no relevance, you know, and they just shoot you down. There's like this panel of 10 people and uh, you've just got, just got to defend your idea as best you can. And uh, then the second interview uh, is like per, you know, a personal attack. I felt like it was anyway. Um, and it's like, so why should you be the, the guy to do this? Like, and they're like, you know, why why aren't the military doing this? Like you, surely the army know all that stuff. Why don't you just go to them? And you had to yeah. defend why. And they're like, you know, you're, you're too junior. Well, you shouldn't even be here. And like, it was really, it was good. Like I, I had to fight, it was adversarial. I had to fight my way out of it. And uh yeah, it was brilliant. Um, came out the other end and, and got awarded a Churchill Fellowship. So um, that was That's cool. Like, well up in front yeah. of um, the governor and uh, David Hurley and uh, presented with the fellowship and I was actually standing on stage and uh, he said to me as I came up and shook his hand, because I, I was going to the UK and Canada. That's where, I, oh, sorry, I was going to the USA and Canada. Uh, that's where I'd been able to find contacts for, to do my trip. And so I planned the whole thing around that. As I came up on stage, uh, he said, he shook my hand and he said to me, well, I'd spent a fair bit of time with the Mert guys and I've seen a lot of the stuff that the UK are doing in the counterterrorism space. Why aren't you going there? And I was like, it's oh. a good point, sir. I'll, uh, I'll look into it. <laughs> he, he is such a nice bloke. Um, yeah. Really, I met him a couple of times and I, I worked with a, someone who was his ADC for many years. And okay. yeah, he's just like a genuinely really good good fella but also um obviously a very distinguished military commander and yeah he can he can be tough when he needs to be but yeah yeah that's cool yeah and so actually um so i actually changed my i'd I'd set my whole um path for the for the fellowship like the three months that i was away around the usa and canada and then i just added another leg onto which i actually paid for myself um, yep. to go to the UK after he, he said that to me. I was like, oh, he's right. Oh, I should be going to the UK. Yeah. <laughs> and I got I got lots <laughs> out of it. Like, it was a really good experience. Um, I think I flew from, like, LA to London, um, spent, like, a week there, and then flew from London back to LA and then back to Australia, like, the wrong way around the world. And yep. uh, it was hectic, but – and I had some serious insomnia for a little while during I that bet. trip. But, um, yeah, I went to went up to their – like, to Winterbourne Gunner, um, in Salisbury where their CBRN school is and did a bunch of stuff with their, with the, the national ambulance resilience unit. And I worked with some, uh, London ambulance guys on road and, um, yeah, it was, it was just a, a fantastic experience. I really got a lot out of going there and I'm glad that I, I put that onto the end of the trip. Did you get to see HEMS in action as well? Or? Uh, not on that trip. I went back in 2019 on another, um, yep. like a, an inner rock scholarship from the clinical excellence commission. Mm-hmm. And, um, during that time I went back and I, 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 I had, because uh, I, I made friends with some people over there and uh, Claire Park particularly um, from London Hems uh, 
got me onto onto a, a shift with with Hems, and that was really awesome. Yeah, not particularly yeah. Um, su- super relevant to what I was studying, but uh, um, awesome nonetheless, and amazing to see what they do and how they react. In fact, I guess that's probably not true because they they uh, I mean they, they have to they've got two different um, calls for uh, for a job. One is with a um, a stab vest, and one's without a stab vest. So there is a, certainly mm. a tactical element to what they do for sure. And just getting someone with a skill set really rapidly through the traffic yep. and landing yeah. them in yeah. to where they need to be, it's a pretty cool asset in a it massive is. city. Absolutely, um, yep. So you went around and you just were basically observing what um, different services did around the world to take out the best bits yep. uh, and bring them back to Australia. Was that yeah. kind of the goal? Yeah, yeah pretty much, yeah. yeah. The, um, the intent was to... Um, find out best practice um, from people that were doing these things from the experience they'd had in, you know, their active shooter incidents or terrorism response or whatever, find out how they'd uh, built their projects um, and then try and replicate some of the best of what I I found. So, um, yeah, like I I did a lot of training courses where I was a student on the course just to see what it was like. I had a lot of high level meetings with guys, you know, from like, for instance, um, Department of Homeland Security or, New York uh, Fire Department Counterterrorism Unit, um, but I tried to do everything in between. So not just meetings, not just ride-alongs, not just training, but um, a, a mix of all sorts of experiences uh, to really try and find the best approaches. Yeah, um, wow. Yeah, really, really amazing trip. Like it just being taken in everywhere I went, you know, I mean, like the fire, FDMY sent a, a guy in a fire truck to pick me up from the airport and, um, <laughs> you know, just like the, the brotherhood that exists yeah. um, out there in emergency services. Uh, people really went out of their way to look after me and make me feel welcome and give me, you know, a T-shirt or a coin or a hat or um, mm. just, you know, it was just, it was a really incredible experience. And I, I don't know if we do that very well in Australia. Like I've, I know no. people visit quite often to emergency services in Australia and they just get a cold reception. Um, yeah, we're, we're kind of like too too cool. We don't want yeah. to say, oh, mate, like thank you for your service. And then the That's Yanks right. are good at doing that because we're like, oh, you know, we don't want to give them a big head. Like yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. overinflate them, but <laughs> we, we really should be celebrating um, our clinicians who are doing amazing work. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. hats off, John. Absolutely. And I, I love that concept of looking after your brothers even if, if, and sisters, even if you don't know them, uh, the fact that we work in that same industry, we know that they, they're out there saving lives and, and, and doing the hard yards. Uh, we should welcome them, welcome them with open arms and do everything we can to make them um, feel welcome when they come to Australia. Yeah. So how was that received? You learned a lot in that time and you took yep. it back to ambulance and we're trying to bring in changes nationally and lessons learned. How did that um, get received and were there any changes made or did you really have to fight from the outset? Yeah, it was um, an absolute fight from the outset. Like uh, it it was sort of come back from something like that and you're like, yes, awesome. You know, like it's been so positive. I've got so much to teach people and so much to, so many ideas to implement. And then you come back and uh, yeah, no one from a, a high level is interested at all. Uh, <laughs> and actually, to, to the extent where I had a whole bunch of uh, photos and a story written up for the um, New South Wales Ambulance, like the internal magazine um, that they put out yep. every month. And uh, I submitted that and said, hey, I've just done this awesome trip and here's this stuff. And they were like, oh, yeah, um, that's cool. But um, 
you can't uh, submit those photos because you were in uniform. I was like, yeah, oh. I was paid by the ambulance service for this whole thing. They're like, yeah, but did you get permission from blah, blah, blah yeah. to wear uniform? I was like, no, I didn't know that I needed to speak to blah, blah, blah for you know, specific permission <laughs> while I was being paid by the ambulance service to do this trip. And uh, so they, I had to submit my photos of me only, only doing things in plain clothes. Uh, <laughs> and that was that was sort yeah. of indicative of the you know the, the general vibe like yeah this guy from our service has done this thing but uh, let's like you know sort of just try and hope no. it doesn't really cause too much agitation yeah um, so yeah like initially like it was re I, I really started from the top and really tried to uh, make this an ambulance service wide program uh, and then with no absolutely no luck and lots of pushback and lots of just crap from senior managers saying we don't need to worry about this stuff. You need to like, just chill out. Um, I, I realized that I needed to go small and start from the bottom up. And so uh, from there, essentially uh, just went back within special ops and, uh, and just fought and fought and fought until we got to the stage where in 2016, we started running training and we were able to run our own training program, which was the two day tactical medical operations course. Uh, and that was amazing just to get to the stage where we could then um, set everything up so that uh, everybody got that training. And then we expanded the training over years. We expanded the capability. We built more into it over time. We, we, we added in covert operations or discrete operations. We added in uh, tactical triage. We added in uh, new equipment that we built on top of the initial equipment we, we got for, you know, including chest seals, tourniquets, et cetera. Um, and yeah, so it was sort of like building it from the ground up when I realized that going from the top down just wasn't going to be an option. Wasn't going to work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what do you think were the biggest barriers in that change management? Was it just too radical, that that mindset of looking at threat and responding to it? What, yeah. what were those? Like, and how did you, I mean, you sort of said you overcome them by just starting small and building the model up and introducing the training and gradually changing it. But, yeah, what? So was it a, I think, an attitude I think, or? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things there. I think, yeah, definitely that idea just, that you just mentioned uh, of the idea, the, the, the concept of threat and that being too much, you know, like the, the idea of working in a warm zone uh, for an ambulance service was a little bit too heavy. Mm -hmm. um, so there was definitely, uh, definitely like people who just weren't interested because of that. Um, thing is like in New South Wales ambulance, we already had a warm zone capability uh, in name. Um, you know, we, we had, paramedics in the back of the Bearcat and sitting outside the, the cafe in armor, ready to go into the warm zone. Um, yeah. So we had, that, we had that capability. We just hadn't like really spent some time training it, uh, building it, making it a really robust capability, which would be, would be safer for the guys in the end anyway. But the more you train on this stuff and the more you set your equipment up for this stuff, the safer it will be for the responders, not the other way around. But it felt like it was perceived as if uh, it was going to build more threat for our responders as a result. It was too dangerous to do what we were doing, hmm. which is a really yeah. interesting, you know, very counterintuitive. But um, yeah, yeah, I think that was definitely definitely an issue. Like that was definitely one of the things that made it hard to get um get to get change. I think also the fact that um, it uh, th there's just a lot of um uh non-progressive culture in emergency services. So you get something like ambulance rescue, which is like you know done the same thing for for many decades. And then you tell them that they're going to do everything differently and we're going to train really hard and, and you know, they're going to be doing push-ups in body armor and then applying tourniquets, then uh, that's, yeah, just, yeah, there's a lot of pushback from some people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so was, there was a cultural divide. Uh, you know, we were the new agitating young guys uh, that were trying to make things 
happened faster than they had for a long time. And yeah. Definitely got a lot of pushback as a result of that. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I guess like in terms of the ways that we went around trying to get around some of those, those change barriers, um, there, there was lots of different ways that we did it. There was lots of different, you know, interpersonal things and like the way that we collaborated um, with different agencies uh, and different services in different countries and states, I think was really important. Uh, we built, we didn't just do it inside our little team and then build our own people. We brought in people continuously from New Zealand, from interstate, from Queensland ambulance, from uh, from MICA, from uh, the military. We had military people in there all the time from other government agencies as well. Uh, and then we also brought in, in people from overseas. If there was people in the country that were visiting or doing something else or at the Australian Tactical Medicine Conference, we'd bring them down and put them into our tactical medical operations program. Um, yeah, so that, that's I, cool. I, I, like, I think it buys a bit of legitimacy, but it also um, just makes people realise that it's not just us. We all, we, everyone's doing it. We're all trying to be better. We're all trying to learn off yeah. each other. Yeah. And, and it shouldn't be a threatening thing, you know, like yeah. it's a good thing to keep learning and developing yeah. our policies and our practice. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. So you were um, sort of involved in establishing ATMA, the Australian Tactical Medical Association. Was yep. that, that was around 2017. Yeah. And kind of aligned pretty nicely with what you got out of the Churchill Fellowship and and trying to progress this stuff. Was that was that the goal? Like you're just frustrated. You were, you need to get more traction. You need to get that yeah. collaboration happening internationally to to push things forward. Yeah, yeah. So it was it was a just an idea a, a mate and I came up with. Um, you know, we sort of floated the idea, and then we were like, ah, nah, it's never going to work. Like it's it's too crazy. And then a couple of days later, someone else said, oh, I've heard about that idea. I'm like, oh, <laughs> maybe we should do it. And uh, we, and we just did it. And uh, yeah, it's it's been incredible. Like it was definitely for me, it was an extension of everything that I was trying to do from the Churchill Fellowship um, that I hadn't been able to get uh, the high level engagement within the ambulance service or even within other ambulance services. I I went up and presented at um the Council of Ambulance Authorities up in Brisbane. I, I flew myself up there. Um, I paid for my own flights and I, I turned up because I got a, a, a seat at the table to come and present on tactical medicine and what I'd done uh, in the Churchill Fellowship. And uh, there was there was some really interesting responses around the room from those heads of every special operations or emergency management team from um, from every ambulance service. Yeah. And a couple of the guys were like, this is brilliant. Let's do it and let's make this happen. Let's, let's get a, a national push. And then... New South Wales and uh, some others were not keen at all. And anyway, anyway, end up sitting with the New South Wales Ambulance Emergency Management Coordinator or whatever she was called at the time. And she basically just stalled and did nothing and just wasn't interested. And I tried, I kept trying to push. Um, she, she was left with the responsibility to start the program and she just wasn't interested. So mm. nothing happened. Uh, and that was, that was a massive missed opportunity. Like it could have been uh, a, a national program that we pushed back and, and do, did a whole bunch of counterterrorism stuff that fit into whatever their local programs were. But yeah, no, um, once again, uh, the cultural divide and a regressive uh, approach to things um, meant that it, it didn't go ahead. So I essentially, with, with that frustration of things like that, that just wouldn't go ahead, uh, I, yeah, we, we, we got together at Mar, pulled in a bunch of um, really awesome people that were across military and civilian uh, ambulance, police, fire, uh, and we just sort of built this built this little team of people and started from there. And um, yeah, it's just it's been an, been an amazing experience, been incredibly successful, and I feel like it's just uh, yes, collaboration is the biggest thing, but it's also it's been a voice for 
for us, you know, for people that work in the military and civilian in any sort of threat profile, whether that's because we're remote or because we're in a police uh, environment or whether it's in the military. But I think it's, I feel like it's just been a really powerful um, voice that's been given to the, to everybody. Yeah, that's awesome. And you've moved now on into a role with TACMED as well. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So can you just tell us sort of what that is and, and what TACMED offer in that space? Yeah, so um, essentially we just, um, I, I run the training side. So um, we just run a bunch of training for, it's essentially um, taking a lot of the concepts that uh, are valid for when we talk about, you know, working in like a, a, a special operations ambulance environment or uh, in policing. And we just take that to different agencies. So um, we train the same sort of concepts. And I like what you said at the start, Emma, about, you know, like a, about the mindset. Um, mm. A lot of it's about that, that mindset of working in dangerous areas. Um, and then equipping people with the ability to do first aid, medical treatment in those same environments. And so, yeah, so from the 2019-2020 fire season, which is when I was transitioning out of emergency services, uh, we really started to move into bringing our tactical medical medicine concepts to people who work in these environments, you know, around fire, um, in, in uh, remote national parks, remote area firefighting teams, uh, you know, but basically non-tactical environments but places that share exactly the same sort of threats and problems and need the same sort of mindset and medical treatment and, uh, and first aid concepts uh, the tactical environments require. So uh, that's been great having the opportunity to work in those um, settings, but also still, you know, we, we have the contract for all the Tasmania police and uh, we work with lots of police teams all over Australia and lots of government agencies and now starting to move a little bit more into the resources sector as well. And once again, mining and that as well. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So non-tactical environments, but places where the same skill set and the same knowledge and the same mindset work really yeah. effectively. It's remote. It's a steer. It's difficult for yeah. whatever reason. Yeah. That's You're right. battling yeah. the elements or yep. yeah yeah um so atma have their conference coming up in september yep correct yeah that's right up in brizzy in brizzy and yep. um TACMED, they've got a range of stuff that uh, people can reach out to you uh, or to the organization from their website yep. yep i guess just to sort of finish up what have you found to be you know the biggest challenges in your uh, career so far <laughs> and, and what's you know you're like a dog with a bone with this stuff which is awesome for everyone else who gets to write off the benefits of that um, so yeah how do you, I guess how did you overcome those sort of challenges along the way I think uh, persistence is obviously important um, mm. because it's quite easy to and also I think like just giving things a go you know like the the, the whole thing the, the whole sort of idea around Atma just started with having a chat about what we could do and then giving it a go. And I think, um, you know, believing in yourself when you when you decide to make a call like that and just seeing it right through by being persistent, not not giving up and, and continue, continuing yeah. to push. I mean, there's a million times through the process from Lint Cafe to 2019 when we, you know, finally started the, the full-time tactical paramedic team in Sydney. Um, through that whole time frame, I could have stopped a thousand times and just been a little bit more... Um, lenient and just focus, you know, just like not not push things so much and not work so hard. And um, I didn't because we wanted we we believed strongly in what we wanted to do, and we all worked really hard to get to that end state. So I think that's that's definitely one of the big things is uh, is is persistence. But um, I think persistence is great, but you also need to be uh, able to recognise that uh, no matter how persistent you are, you will fail. 
and I have failed in so many things I've done, but, uh, you know, just learning from that failure, not letting it uh, be the end of your persistence, but still persisting in another way or going back and trying that again with a different ap- approach, but just being being set for failure because it's going to happen no matter what. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, those setbacks and, you know, I've had so many that I've, I've gone through and then just coming back out the other side and going, you know what, I'm still here. I can still keep going and uh, just need to have a positive mindset and, and persist onwards. And you've set it up for the next person to pick it up and run with it, you know, like yeah, that's right. it, it's all chipping away at, um, at making our health system better. Yeah, so, that's right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and what advice uh, would you give people beginning or, or aspiring for that career in that tactical medicine space? That's a, it's a pretty broad question, I know. But... It is. No, but it's, it's interesting because <laughs> it's, uh, it's one that I get asked quite like people quite often ask about it. Um, you yeah, because like, everyone wants see. to do cool stuff. Exactly. <laughs> that's right. Um, and I think, yeah, like uh, the, the same thing I've said to a lot of people is, uh, just um, be a really good clinician, and mm. um, once you've set, you've got that set. Uh, don't don't try and jump too fast into the next thing. Like I, I I wanted to become a really good paramedic and then a really good intensive care paramedic before I started going into a diversified career doing special ops and that sort of thing. Um, and I, I found that my grounding as a clinician before I got into into SOT was great because I was really comfortable with my um uh with my whole um clinical base of base knowledge before I started doing more specialized stuff. And uh, I think that's, that's really important, but I think um, there's a, there's a very limited tactical side in uh, Australian ambulance. There's, there's only a couple of small teams that do much of this stuff, but there's a lot of other places where they incorporate similar um, type skill sets. And I think, you know, like if you, if you work in SES and do some volunteering on Swiftwater Rescue, or, you know, you do, I don't know, like maybe start looking at doing some, rescue crewmen on a, on a helicopter or like whatever, like, you know, there's a, a million doing, doing um, combat paramedicine through the military. There's like so many options for you to do things that are similar, but you're not like dedicated into a tactical paramedic team, yeah. for instance. Um, and those things are, are just as enjoyable and you'll get just as much out of them. And then if you do that stuff, then that might lead to, you know, ending up doing the cool thing that you wanted to do from the, from the start potentially. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Matt Pepper, what an amazing career. Thanks for your time and thank you for your service. Awesome. Thank you, Emma. Thanks very much for having me on the show. Thank you.